Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so as we cover such topics as science, technology, transhumanism, and some futurism. I am a blogger at sentientdevelopments.com, and I'm also the chair of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Welcome once again to the podcast. I've got a lot of things to discuss today. Again, no unified theme, but uh, hopefully some very interesting and uh, engaging subjects. Start, I'm going to start it all off by uh, describing Dave Asprey's claim that he's been able to boost his IQ by 30 points through the use of creatine and dual end back training, and I'll get into what he means by that. Also going to describe uh, and discuss the recent uh, controversy over an article uh, claiming that red meat will kill you prematurely by a significant order. And uh, going to discuss in particular, not, not, the, uh, not that uh, meat will kill you, but rather the re- reaction uh, to that article in the paleo and nutritionist community. Then going to talk about the Ashley treatment five years later. Yes, it has been five years since the Ashley treatment, and I'll get into that and where we find ourselves today with that. And uh, then switching gears to discuss a new approach to, or perhaps even an old-fashioned approach, if you will, to destroying incoming asteroids with nuclear weapons and why they think that we might be able to do it that way. Going to talk about Anders Sandberg's claim that we should bioengineer humans to tackle climate change and that very controversial article. And going to talk about some questions that we don't know the answers to as, pro- as proposed by Ted Ed. And in particular, how many universes are there and what about alien life? And I will conclude the show by talking about future risks and the challenge to democracy. That will be the show for today. Like I said, lots of different subjects to tackle. But before we get into the segments, as always, I'd like to just fill you in on some of the um, uh, details of my personal life. It was March break last week. So took the kids to Mont Tremblant in Quebec for some skiing uh, with my mom and dad. And uh, it was two days, but it was two days of pretty spectacular skiing. The conditions weren't completely ideal. The uh, temperature was warm, and uh, the conditions were also very foggy and cloudy. Uh, the mountain is nearly 800 meters in height, so you're almost up uh, at a kilometer's height. And uh, yeah, because of the, because of the conditions, uh, you had some strange kinds of snow, what's called corn snow. It's very thick often, and uh, requires a lot of energy to have to uh, plow through it. But that being said, it was a wonderful time to get away, to be with the family. Uh, you know, it's a good time to bond with your kids. And uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely uh, an excellent way to spend the March break. I'd never gone skiing during March break before, and but uh, I certainly do recommend it. And for those who know Mont Tremblant in Quebec, it's an absolutely outstanding facility. And I, I do recommend it, particularly on this side of the continent. I know it doesn't compare to the West Coast and the mountains that they have over there, but this is the best we can do here 
and uh, on this half of the uh, of the continent. Okay, and then in terms of uh, the CrossFit and the CrossFit Open that I'm currently participating in, we are in. Uh, we just completed week three and week four, and I'm not sure where I left it with you guys last week, but um, I did manage to get uh, for the the last workout. It was. Um, yeah, I don't think I announced this on the blog last week or on the podcast last week, but it was, uh, we started it off with 150 wall balls followed by, um, double 90 double unders and then muscle ups. And, uh, you had 12 minutes to do all that. So 150 wall balls, a wall ball shot is basically you take a 20 pound medicine ball and from a full squat, you have to throw it up to a 10 foot height. And for women, it was a, I think a 14 pound or 16 pound ball. And, uh, that's pretty taxing. If you're a newcomer to CrossFit, it just, it destroys you. There's no question about it. And, uh, even now, days afterwards, I'm still walking silly from it, but I did manage to get the 150 double unders in, in approximately seven minutes. I can do it in less than that, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't need to gas myself out because then I had to do 90 double unders, a double under being skipping, but skipping such that the skipping rope goes underneath you twice instead of the typical one time around. So that's pretty demanding uh, from a cardiovascular perspective. And it can also be taxing on the shoulders and wrists, particularly after you've just done 150 wall balls. And unfortunately, I did not get the full 90 in. I got so close, though, I got 86 in. So uh, that was my score for the fourth workout. And uh, the workout prior to that was this silly, crazy 18-minute AMRAP where we had to do uh, 15 box jumps, 12 push presses at 115 pounds, and 12 toes to bar, uh, sorry, nine toes to bar. And we had to cycle through that for 18 minutes and count how many rounds you got. And uh, I managed to get uh, over five rounds there, which is nothing spectacular, but I managed to hit my target uh, knowing you know what, what I'm capable of and knowing um, my reference class, so very happy with that. So we've got one more week to go on the CrossFit Open, at which point I'll kind of see my final standings in terms of where I fit in along with 65,000 other CrossFitters from around the world who are testing their their fitness and uh, their strength and cardiovascular endurance and all the other things that are part of being a fit individual. And lots of fun, very challenging, certainly takes you to places you would have never uh, voluntarily taken yourself into. And I know that in our gym, we're doing really well. Lots of people are, again, doing movements and lifts that they've never done before because they never really would have tried to do so, but you're kind of compelled to do that in competition mode. And needless to say, there are a lot of people uh, hitting personal records and, like I said, doing some movements and some activities that, that they would have never thought possible before, and myself included. As I mentioned, uh, I had to PR uh, the snatch, and I did a 135-pound snatch, which I had never done before. So, And I remember even last year, I also had to set a PR in order to be able to progress in the competition by doing a 120-pound um, overhead squat. So that is the CrossFit update. Um, as for um, the job hunt and uh, school potential, that's still in the works. And like I said, uh, things are progressing nicely. I don't have any news for you as yet as things are up in the air. But just know that I'm doing all right. And uh, taking the time right now as I'm looking for work to do things like podcasting and reading and relaxing, like I said, even taking the kids out to March break. So life's good right now. Things are, things are decent. So let's take a break. Listen to some music. And when we return, going to consider Dave Asprey's claim that he was able to boost his IQ by an entire 30 points by simply using creatine and dual NBAC training.
Dave Asprey, also known as the Bulletproof Executive. And in fact, if you want to look into his stuff, just Google Bulletproof Executive. Um, he's made the claim that his IQ was raised 30 points by taking creatine and going through dual and back training exercises. Um, Dave Asprey, he's kind of one of these uh, uh, Timothy Ferris types, paleo types. In fact, I've even heard him being referred to as paleo 2.0 in terms of his approach. Uh, I take this guy very seriously, follow his Twitter feed, and uh, always has some interesting things to say. And what I really like about him as well is a lot of self-experimentation and quantification. So he doesn't just, you know, do um, or just you know, go engage in these uh, various experiments. He does track his his progress and he tracks the results. And that's why I was interested to see that he was able to raise his IQ by an entire 30 points. And I will admit to you, I am suspicious of the claim. I mean, 30 points is pretty damn significant. And I uh, I would like to actually see how he measured that and, and how he recorded that. But what I will say is I'm quite sure that at the very least there is some merit to his proposition that the combination of the two can be a very good cognitive booster. Now I've written and spoken uh, about the merits of creatine. As you know, I do take, uh, I do low dose creatine, not just for its strength, um, uh, benefits. Uh, as mentioned, it does assist tremendously with uh, when you need to do um, high exertion activities, such as weightlifting, for example, or sprinting, anything that, that requires quite a, a strong muscular uh, boost. Even uh, it even assists, for example, with uh, mu- muscular endurance on, in terms of certain activities. But one interesting side effect, if you will, of taking creatine is also it can be used as a cognitive booster, and I can certainly vouch for that. Uh, definitely, I mean the uh, the the three. I guess nootropics I'm using right now includes creatine. Who would have thought, you know, that creatine could be used as a nootropic, but there you go. I'm also doing omega-3 fatty acids, which by the way, uh, Dave Asprey is also an advocate of in terms of uh, being a cognitive booster. And as in addition, I do take choline from time to time as well. So I'm, I'm on board with him there. And now he's said that you got, you've got to combine that though with NBAC training. And uh, many of you probably know what that is. And I'm sure some of you do not know. So what I'll do right now is actually I'll play a clip from Dave Asprey where he's being interviewed by Forbes magazine. And he describes what he's actually up to here and how he's been able to do it. So here is Dave Asprey. Dave, you say that you have managed to raise your IQ through your various techniques by, I believe, uh, about 20 points. So you said a dozen here and a dozen there. It, it's kind of hard to measure because if you take the same test multiple times, you just get better at taking the test. So I've taken different tests, but the number is probably about 30. Okay, so how'd you do it? And then I got a follow-up. If you're over 30, the simplest and easiest way to raise your IQ by 10 to 12 points is creatine. You know, the weightlifter supplement? Hmm. Well, it turns out creatine affects the energy production in your cells. And that will then make you actually smarter because when the cells in your brain work better, if they have more energy, you think better. On top of that, I use something called dual in-back training, which is available as an Android app or as an app for your PC. It's called Bulletproof Mindware. What this does is it teaches you to have sort of two cues or two sets of things that you can remember. All of us know like seven phone numbers, right? You can remember seven things pretty easily. What if you could remember seven things here and seven things here, and then you could mix and match between those? That's what this training does. It's uncomfortable. It makes you frustrated when you do the training. It takes about a total of 10 to 20 hours. But when you're done, the results from people who come to my website and post the results from this are between 10 and 20 IQ points that they show improvement in just, you know, a day's worth of work, basically. It's kind of amazing, but it works. 
Do you ever look back at your life before that IQ jump and say, oh, damn, if only I'd had my 20 extra points? You know, on occasion I do, but honestly, I weighed 300 pounds back then. So I think I would have rather have lost the 100 pounds first and then gotten smarter. But, you know, I'll take what I can get. So very interesting stuff. The, the, uh, I've, I've known about dual end back training for a while. And I've, like I said, I've never got uh, into it, never actually tried it myself. But I have to admit, I'm really intrigued now. Uh, it sounds like it's not going to uh, you know, be something that uh, is easy. He said it is frustrating, clearly. And uh, one would also need to set aside the time to do this. So I think in the name of self-experimentation, and uh, again, just simply out of curiosity as well, and wanting, wanting to expand on uh, uh, perhaps my cognitive strength and my memorization skills, I think I'll give this a shot. And if any of you, by the way, uh, listeners have tried the NBAC training, please be in touch and let me know what your uh, experience with it was, how hard it was. And again, the idea here uh, with NBAC training, and I know that they've done this for people with, let's say, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So it is being used in uh, the realm of um, uh, cognitive health for those suffering from neurodegenerative disorders is that to get your kind of memory skills back in your in your brains and your brain uh, nicely uh, exercised is to the idea of holding multiple ideas in your head at at, at the same time uh, hold them in your memory banks if you will and synthesize and work with that information so it sounds kind of fascinating and there's an intuitive part of it i think it makes sense it makes sense that if you're to kind of have to hold multiple concepts in your head and work with those ideas that you are having to kind of pull deep into your cognitive reserves. And I can only see that as being akin to working out and being at the gym. I do like this idea of the mental gym and exercising your brain on occasion and very regularly for that matter. So there you go. Dave Asprey, give it a shot, guys. Creatine plus dual in back training. I'm going to, I think I'm going to give this a shot. Let me know if you do it too and we'll see how we fare. Now on the whole paleo, topic as Dave Asprey is kind of paleo. If you, I've actually met him at Burning Man last year, very cool guy. And uh, we talked about our paleo habits. He is a, he's definitely um, an advocate of healthy fats. In fact, he's the uh, inventor of the uh, Bulletproof Coffee, which I talked about in an earlier podcast episode, which is basically a coffee that has a very significant portion of fats to it, in particular, um, in particular, um, oh, this escapes me now. Uh, the kind of fat, but it, it makes for very delicious, very frothy kind of um, uh, coffee. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so yeah, as I was saying, uh, meat and paleo. And there was a study put out by a Harvard group. It was an observational study. And uh, they made this claim that meat will kill you, or something akin to that. At least that's how the media certainly interpreted it. And the media... Uh, they had some crazy claims such as, you know, this will take 10 to 20% off of your life expectancy. And, uh, it was just, uh, obviously it it exploded and certainly all the, uh, all the meat haters, uh, particularly the red meat haters were all over this. And, uh, I think it made quite an impact in, uh, the various media outlets last week. So thankfully, um, and by the way, just specifically what they did say was that red meat consumption is in fact associated with an increased risk of total cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality. So they were specific there, but uh, and again, this is a purely observational and correlative study, which you might be uh, now thinking, oh, that might be where some of the problems lie with this study. And in fact, thankfully, a number of paleo bloggers and nutritionists, they did take the time to pick apart the study and uh, they basically conveyed all the various flaws that were a part of this study. 
and I compiled kind of a quick list on my blog and check it out if you want to read more because some of them are some of them are pretty good some of them are very readable others are very uh, scientific in nature and they break it down into charts and graphs like I'm so impressed like if you take for example Zoe Harcomb's article called Red Meat and Mortality and the Usual Bad Science I mean she did yeoman's work on this one fantastic and then there was Mark's Daily Apple uh, the, the article was called Will Eating Red Meat Kill You? There was The Caveman Doctor. Uh, the article was Red Meat Consumption and Mortality. Over at Constantly Varied, Red Meat Study. Here we go again. And of course, Rob Wolf, very famous paleo advocate. Uh, his article, Red Meat, Part of a Healthy Diet. And I just want a, a brief takeaway from Rob Wolf's article. He, after kind of looking at the various uh, uh, literature out there, he said there were three basic problems with the Harvard study. Number one was that nutrition data was collected by a food frequency questionnaire. Yes, that's right. All the people had to do was just remember what they thought they ate over the course of decades. How crazy is that? Oh, anyways, um, and then um, there's also a whole number of confounders, confounders galore. The higher meat consumption group tended to be overweight, smoked, and was less active. So apparently, as Rob Wolf noted, they did not get a paleo cohort in that mix, did they? And uh, obviously, correlation does not equal causation. And these are the fundamental flaws of the article. Now, I want to go in particular to an article by Denise Minger, which got published in Mark's Daily Apple. And uh, obviously, she's critiquing the uh, the whole questionnaire aspect of it as a, a test of superhuman memory and saint-like honesty, which makes me makes me laugh. And if I can quote from Denise's article in the section Observations versus Experiment, she says, quote, Before we even dig into what the study found, let's address an important caveat that the media, and even the researchers, unless they were terribly misquoted, seem to be confused about. What we've got here is a garden variety observational study, not an actual experiment where people change something specific they're doing and thus make it possible to determine cause and effect. Observations are only the first step of the scientific method, a good place to start, but never the place to end. These studies don't exist to generate health advice, but to spark hypotheses that can be tested and replicated in a controlled setting so we can figure out what's really going on. Trying to find proof in an observational study is like trying to make a penguin lactate. It just ain't happening. Ever. Nonetheless, the media blurbs and even quotes from the scientists themselves suggest this study has a major cause case of mistaken identity. The lead researcher, Frank Hugh, claimed the study provides clear evidence that regular consumption of red meat, especially processed meat, contributes substantially to premature death, despite the fact that the study is innately incapable of providing such evidence. It's as if someone pulled a Campbell on us. Only an actual experiment with controls and manipulated variables could start confirming causation. But the study's overextrapolation isn't really that surprising. A conclusive experiment is what every observational study secretly yearns to be deep down in its confounder-riddled, non-randomized heart. And like pushy stage mothers, some researchers want their observational studies to be more talented and remarkable than they really are, leading to the scientific equivalent of a four-year-old wobbling around in stilettos at a beauty pageant. Our study at hand is a perfectly decent piece of observational literature, but as soon as its authors or the media smear it with lipstick and make it sing Patsy Cline songs on stage, it's all downhill from there. End quote. And if I could pull again from Denise Minger's article here. Uh, so what about this death stuff? So, quote, for those of you who hoped this analysis would completely obliterate any link the researchers found between red meat and dying prematurely, here's the anticlimactic part. 
In the context of what's ultimately wobbly, imperfect, and tragically inconclusive observational data, the researchers did find that the folks reporting the highest intake of red meat had slightly elevated rates of death from cardiovascular disease, cancer, and total mortality, though as we should know by now, correlation isn't causation. After adjusting for age and the other documented confounders, the association went down but didn't disappear completely. And again, if you like staring at numbers, you can take a gander at the tables for all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease mortality, and cancer mortality to see how death risk changed between quartiles and with various statistical adjustments. And you can check out the lovely Zoe Harcomb's parsing of the study if you're craving an even geekier data safari. But there's still more to the story. Those numbers thrown around in the fear-mongering news clips, 20% increased risk of death from all causes of from processed meat and 13% increased risk of death from all causes for unprocessed meat are classic examples of how even the most ho-hum findings can sound dramatic if you spin them the right way and remember to attribute them to the Harvard. If your risk of dying from a particular disease is 5% to start, with a 20% increased risk only bumps you up 6% in the grand scheme of things. That's a lot less scary, especially when delectable foods are involved. So that's going to end on that note from Denise Minger. So again, um, interesting to note that uh, be very careful with how the media spins things. I know you, I know you guys know that. My audience is a very smart and sophisticated group of people. So I uh, just wanted to share that with you. And again, if you want some of the links... Uh, that I uh, talked about. They're all on my blog. Give it a shot and read some of those articles. Very interesting stuff. And just one last note before I do, uh, we do go to break. And that is the whole confounders issue as well is a fascinating one, uh, whether it be being overweight and not working out and uh, those good things. But in addition to that, when I think of, let's take a typical red meat uh, meal, for example, whether it be a steak off the grill or a hamburger or even Mexican, it's, when it's very unless you're paleo, you are going to be eating it with some, you know, some rather uh, unfriendly health unfriendly food. So let's take a hamburger. You'd eat it with buns, uh, or if you had, let's say, a pork chop, you might, or you might have uh, some rice with it, um, or let's let's say you know the whole steak and potatoes thing. So you'd have white potatoes with it, and of certain, and of course, there's also uh, having French fries with a hamburger or anything for that matter. So buns, rice, pasta, white potatoes, fries. These are all things that are actually not part of a healthy diet, not part of a paleolithic diet. And I would basically, I would hazard a guess to say that uh, this study would need to very strongly consider the impacts of these foods on things like cancer and cardiovascular disease and even such things as obesity and diabetes, of course, as as we know that the reason for not eating these foods, uh, one of the primary primary reasons is it's uh, the body, because the body breaks it down into its sugars and causes insulin spikes and all that bad stuff. So just saying, just saying that uh, just because you eat red meat doesn't mean that it's the red meat. That is usually what you're eating along with it that might actually be the problem. All right, that's the end of the Red Scare. And going to take a break now. And when we get back, going to talk about the Ashley treatment five years later.
So it's been five years since the advent of the Ashley treatment. Five years ago, the parents of a profoundly intellectually disabled girl, she was born in 1997, she's only, she's only known as Ashley, the parents told the world about a controversial treatment they were using on their child, and it included giving her hormones so that she would remain below normal height and weight, as well as surgery, which included a hysterectomy to remove her, her, her uterus and a bilateral breast bud removal to prevent her breasts from developing. Now, Ashley's mental age was that of a three-month-old and uh, not progressing beyond that. She was unable to walk, talk, hold a toy, or change her position in bed. And her parents are not even sure if Ashley recognized them. And there was no prospect of her mental conditioning, of her mental condition ever improving. So the, the treatment, what is now known as, as the Ashley treatment, was approved by the Ethics Committee at Seattle Children's Hospital, where it was carried out. And it began when Ashley was six and was made public when she was nine. And the aim of the surgery was to keep Ashley small and light so that her parents could continue to move her around frequently and take her with them when going out with their two other children. And the uterus removal was intended to spare her the discomfort of menstrual cramps, the surgery to prevent the development of breasts aimed to make her more comfortable when she was lying down or had to had to strap a, across her chest in her wheelchair. And uh, nevertheless, clearly, when this news became public, many objected to it. And a lot of uh, critics said it was not natural. Others said that, that it violated Ashley's dignity and that it was not in her best interests and that it could lead down a slippery slope of parents modifying their children for their own convenience. And... Uh, it might be of interest to um, to you guys to know that I was actually involved in this particular uh, controversy when it emerged. Uh, I caught wind of this uh, incident or this uh, procedure back when it was um, not even reported by the press yet. I, I'm a, I'm a, I would like to read press releases on occasion. And I remember that this press release was back in 2007 or, or yeah, I think it was 2007. The press release came out, and it was a very matter-of-fact article about the procedure and that it had been done. And uh, I was uh, at first kind of freaked out by it a little bit. I thought this was really strange. How dare they do this? But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, you know, this is actually this is actually fascinating, and uh, definitely something that I thought was in the best interest of both Ashley and her parents. And I didn't necessarily see that any harm was being done here. In fact, I thought it was a good thing. So I decided to put those thoughts onto paper, and I wrote an article entitled uh, "Helping Families Care for the Helpless." And uh, the article was largely unnoticed for a few months. Published it, uh, in the, uh, I published it in the um, at the IEET and on my blog, Sentient Developments. And uh, that kind of, I actually even forgot about it a little bit until the parents themselves came forward. Again, the, this this article was more of the the bioethicists just kind of talking about it, uh, kind of matter of factly. But it wasn't until that the parents came forward about what they had done to their daughter that the issue and the uh, the news hit prime time and went completely international. And what's interesting is that the parents, uh, at the time, I had I was the only person who had published something in defense of the procedure, like the only bioethicist who had kind of come out and support what the parents had done and, and kind of make a case for the what's now called the Ashley treatment. And uh, because the uh, 
because of that, uh, the media, uh, they jumped all over this article, of course. They jumped all over this controversy, and they contacted me. And in fact, I was uh, that was in one of the more incredible weeks of my life. Uh, I was uh, I was touched by so many different media outlets, everything from the BBC through the NBC, uh, Radio Free Europe, and uh, many other uh, many other publications. And was interviewed. I uh, even did a television stint on the BBC. And uh, that was uh, it was rather extraordinary. And uh, again, uh, the first published author in defense of the Ashley treatment. So I became involved in that uh, right from the get-go. So clearly, I have an interest in seeing how this particular procedure uh, has has developed over time, and uh, where we are now. Uh, and uh, there was an article by Peter Singer, the Princeton ethicist, uh, in the in the Guardian uh, last week, where he's com- kind of commemorating the uh, the fifth anniversary, if you will of the Ashley treatment. And much to my surprise, the Ashley treatment uh, now is, I wouldn't call it standard, but the fact of the matter is, is that over a hundred children now have been given the so-called Ashley treatment and uh, are uh, basically are having their growth suppressed, uh, the size of their bodies uh, limited, um, and even their their um, their sexual reproductive options limited as well, in a way that I think uh, will be you know benefits the family uh, as a whole. So today, Ashley, she's 14, and again, uh, her mental condition has not changed, but her size and weight have remained that of a nine-year-old. And the parents remain convinced that uh, they made the right decision decision for Ashley, and that the treatment made her more likely to be comfortable, healthy, and happy. And uh, the parents describe Ashley as being completely loved and her life as good as we can possibly make it. And there seems to be no grounds for holding the opinion that the, the treatment was not in Ashley's best in- interest. So um, now what about the slippery slope argument, for example? And uh, The Guardian found that uh, 12 families have used the Ashley treatment and believes more than 100 children may have been administered with hormones to keep them small. And the fact that few other families are using the treatment does not show that there has been any descent down any particularly nasty slippery slope. And uh, there's uh, cases of Tom and Erica. There are other two other severely intellectually disabled children, and they've been given similar treatments to Ashley. And their mothers, likewise, are convinced that the treatment has enabled their children to live happier lives and are grateful to Ashley's father for being open about how they are coping with Ashley's disability. And Kurt Decker, who's the director of the U.S. National Disability Rights Network, he's been quoted as saying as the treatment could lead to the idea that people with disabilities don't have to be kept alive or integrated in society. Now, there's no reason to believe that those children's interests are better understood by disability rights activists without cognitive impairments than they are understood by the children's parents. The best that can be done for profoundly disabled children with caring families is to keep them with their families. And that's more likely to happen if the families are able to lift them and move them so that they can care for them at home. And again, those being the words of Peter Singer. And uh, I'll give uh, Peter Singer again the last word on this. So, quote, Decker and some other disability rights activists have been calling for the Ashley treatment to be banned. A more reasonable approach would be to require hospital ethics committee approval for such treatments to ensure they are used only on the most profoundly intellectually disabled patients where there is no prospect of improvement. The ethics committee should permit the treatment only when it is convinced it is in the best interests of those children. It is hard to see why a procedure that, on the available evidence, is beneficial to them should be banned. End quote. So that's the Ashley treatment, updated now five years later. Uh, let's go to break and uh, listen to some music first. Going to change um, gears here dramatically, and when we return, going to look into destroying incoming asteroids with nuclear weapons. 
going to consider uh, an argument put forth by Anders Samberg, Anders Samberg and a bunch of others that we should bioengineer humans to tackle climate change and uh, look into some questions that we don't know the answers to. Dead's dead. ago on this podcast, I noted um, a potential solution to dealing with incoming asteroids, and uh, that was this uh, gravity well idea where we bring we bring a, uh, a, an object with a certain amount of mass next to the incoming asteroid and basically use its gravity to change the trajectory of the incoming asteroid. And one of the uh, reasons for that approach, uh, as opposed to sending, let's say, uh, weapons as portrayed in, in Hollywood movies, is that... Uh, that we wouldn't necessarily be fully confident, one, that we could destroy the entire asteroid, or that, two, the debris field uh, wouldn't likewise pose uh, a problem to um, uh, to Earth with all the various chunks of the asteroid raining down on us. Well, it appears that maybe we shouldn't be too hasty in that assessment, and that we might actually still want to consider the use of nuclear weaponry to destroy an asteroid. And it's going to be through the use of supercomputers and the modeling that they will provide to help us do this. So scientists at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and they are a U.S. Department of Energy facility in New Mexico, they used a supercomputer to model Nukes' anti-asteroid effectiveness. In their model, they attacked a 1,650-foot-long space rock, which is basically half half a kilometer, uh, at space rock with a one megaton nuclear weapon. And that's about 50 times more powerful than the U.S. blast inflicted on Nagasaki, Japan, that ended World War II. And the simulation shows that a nuclear blast of that power would indeed fully mitigate the threat to Earth. So rather than I babble on about this, I'll have you listen to the lead scientist on it who actually put this machine together, the supercomputer. And here's what he has to say on their project. One of the simulations we're working on right now is an asteroid mitigation uh, calculation. We think asteroids are really uh, conglomerates of rocks just held loosely together by gravity. If one of these objects is discovered at a very short notice time, say a few months away, and is on an Earth-crossing trajectory, uh, there could be potentially uh, devastation on a worldwide scale. What we're looking at is calculations uh, that perform real hydrodynamics on these objects uh, in order to understand whether we can 
use an energy source of this magnitude to really disrupt this asteroid and prevent the hazard to the, to the entire Earth. This geometry is representative of what we believe the internal structure of an asteroid is. This is actually in the shape of the Itakawa asteroid. These are all granite rocks. The entire uh, size of this asteroid is half a kilometer. It's 500 meters from end to end. It's about 250 meters uh, uh, from side to side. And what you're looking at now is the 3D calculation that's running on Cielo, where I've placed a uh, one megaton energy source at the surface on the long side of this asteroid. Uh, and we're watching the propagation of the shock wave uh, from the detonation point through the asteroid material uh, imparting momentum uh, via the shock uh, interactions with the rocks uh, to the individual rocks and one rock hits the next rock and as a shock wave moves through ultimately this one megaton blast will uh, disrupt all of the rocks in the rock pile of this asteroid uh, and if this were a earth crossing asteroid would uh, fully mitigate the hazard represented by the initial asteroid itself. Uh, the calculations I'm running now on Cielo uh, in 3D um, are state-of-the-art calculations on 32,000 processors. This, this is mind-boggling to me. Uh, we've never run on this many processors. Uh, the, the code is acting normally, running very well. Uh, and in fact, we're able to run these calculations on this machine that we were not able to run on any other previous machine. So modeling the reaction required a lot of computing horsepower, clearly. So the researchers turned to this machine, Cielo, a Cray-built supercomputer, and it's rated at a 1.1 Linpack petaflops. The machine consists of 8,944 dual-socket nodes and 286 terabytes of memory, and it's powered by an 8-core AMD 6136 Optiron CPU. So according to Weaver... The simulation was able to use 32,000 processors, although in this case he probably means cores, given that CLO only has 17,888 CPUs. Regardless, Weaver noted the simulation he ran on the Cray Super was unable to run on any previous machines he had access at the lab. So how cool is that? Here's a good example of how our um, uh, expanding uh, world of supercomputers and our uh, increasing ability to crunch numbers is helping us model things and, uh, before we give them a shot. So... Uh, he, the discovery here is that we could actually disintegrate this thing into its smaller parts, uh, harmless parts, hopefully. Um, my own two cents on the matter is, again, I'm still concerned about the debris field as uh, created by this explosion, that uh, certainly a, a whole bunch of smaller chunks might burn up in the atmosphere. But even still, if let's say it just it, di it didn't, again, the model shows that it broke it up completely and utterly into small portions. But the con my concern is that uh, maybe... Uh, irrationally paranoid that it wouldn't work to the degree that we think it would be like maybe we couldn't uh, situate the bomb as close to it or exactly where we wanted it to be and that the more elegant solution is in fact creating a gravity well next to it such that we just steer it away from the earth changes and just change its trajectory i'm still more partial to that particular solution but that's just me now did you guys see that uh article by anders sandberg and others who said that we should bioengineer humans to tackle climate change. Now, this isn't the first time that a transhumanist, a notable transhumanist, has made uh, some news lately, uh, getting kind of global acclaim, or in this case, global notoriety. Uh, a few weeks ago, it was Julian Savalescu 
having to defend his decision to include a paper about infanticide in the Journal of Medical Ethics. And now Andrew Sandberg is under the gun for his claim that we should bioengineer humans to tackle climate change. And uh, here's uh, what The Guardian had to say about this. Earlier this week, The Atlantic ran an eye-catching, disturbing interview with a professor of philosophy and bioethics at New York University called S. Matthew Liao. He was invited to discuss a forthcoming paper he has co-authored, which will soon be published in the journal Ethics, Policy, and Environment. But within just a few hours of the interview going live, a torrent of outrage and abuse was being directed towards him online. As I tweeted at the time, the interview was indeed unsettling. Liao explained how his paper, entitled Human Engineering and Climate Change, explores the so far ignored subject of how biomedical modifications of humans could be used to mitigate and or adapt to climate change. The modifications discussed included giving people drugs to make them have an adverse reaction to eating meat, making humans smaller via gene imprinting and preimplantation genetic diagnosis, lowering birth rates through cognitive enhancement, genetically engineering eyesight to work better in the dark to help reduce the need for lighting, and the pharmacological enhancement of altruism and empathy to engender a better correlation with environmental problems. Both the interview and the paper itself include a prominent disclaimer. As the paper says, quote, To be clear, we shall not argue that human engineering ought to be adopted. Such a claim would require far more exposition and argument than we have space for here. Our central aim here is to show that human engineering deserves consideration alongside other solutions in the debate about how to solve the problem of climate change. Also, as we envisage it, human engineering would be a voluntary activity, possibly supported by incentives such as tax breaks or sponsored health care, rather than a coerced mandatory activity. End quote of the disclaimer. Back to the Guardian, quote, or sorry, to the Atlantic, quote, however, that wasn't enough to prevent an extremely hostile reception to such ideas. Climate skeptics were the first to vent their anger. Somewhat inevitably, such terms as eugenics, Nazis, and eco-fascists were quickly being bandied around. One skeptic blogger said that the sick Liao and his co-authors should be kept in Guantanamo. Another said the paper presages the death of science and indeed the death of reason in the West. End quote. Wow, some crazy, crazy harsh uh, comments there. Now, here's what's equally interesting. And by the way, Liao, obviously the author, the co-authors being Anders Sandberg and Dr. Rebecca Roach. And they have since had an opportunity to respond to this. I'm going to go to Anders' blog. His blog is entitled Andart. And uh, he wrote an article, just a very quick counter to this, what's happening to him right now. And uh, the article is entitled, Is the Future Green Dwarves? And what's interesting here is Anders actually admits that the that the article, that the paper they put out, was kind of a, was kind of a bit of trolling, that they were actually trolling a little bit here. So I will read you articles, uh, Anders' quick little article here. So and again, the article entitled, Is the Future Green Dwarves? Quote, Seems that Slashdot has noticed the paper, Human Engineering and Climate Change by Matthew Liao, me and Rebecca Roach. The fun part is that Slashdot tagged it troll, which I personally find accurate. When I contributed, I felt I was partially trolling. The basic argument is that climate change and many other environmental problems have upstream and downstream solutions. So, for example, number one, human consumption leads to, number two, a demand for production and energy, which leads to, number three, industry, which leads to, number four, greenhouse gas emissions, which leads to, five, planetary heating, which leads to, six, bad consequences. One solution might be to make less emissive industry. Another might be to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere geoengineering that cools the planet, or adapt to a changed world. The latter are downstream solutions. 
When geoengineering is suggested, many people think it's better to use an upstream solution for a variety of reasons, such as controllability, skepticism of technological fixes, etc. Consuming less would be really upstream, ignoring the practical problems of actually doing it to the extent necessary, which are pretty major and the countervailing aspects of human psychology. But if it's better to have upstream solutions, why not go for cause zero, human desires for various things? If people do not want meat, plenty of grassland could be reforested and emissions reduced. If people want to have fewer children, resources become less scarce and so on. If people are smaller, they need less resources. So we argue that it might be a good idea to look at re-engineering humans to be green. Obviously, we can change ourselves through culture and rational convincing to some extent, but it is tough to change lifestyle this way. So there might be tricks to modify ourselves in order to be better behave in ways we want to want. Biological means to make our second-order desires dominate first-order desires. The methods we mentioned are mostly examples and likely very far, sort of far too wussy to amount to much, but there might be better methods if we were to investigate them properly. Of course, in the long run, I think the real sustainable choice is to become post-biological, but that is a bit further away. This is also why I doubt genetic engineering is going to be that effective. It also takes so long a time. Parents will be very cautious about it, and the things that can be done are ethically are fairly limited. To, to some degree, I think our paper is green design fiction of the kind I criticized earlier, but I suspect that the ethical irritant effect of bioengineering humans might be enough to trigger some thinking about to what lengths we actually want to go down about fixing the environment. Sometimes downstream solutions might be more ethical and humane, but we should not imagine that our biological nature is exempt from being part of a potential solution. End quote. There you have it from Anders, one of the contributors to this article. And I kind of I admire him for this. Uh, Anders has guts. There's no question about it. Like how can you imagine anyone that basically puts out an article to put his own reputation, put his own name at stake uh, for, you know, for to some degree, he was I mean, he will admit here in this article, there's a certain amount of sincerity to it. Like he said, that even the idea of us becoming eventually post biological. Clearly, Anders is a transhumanist futurist is thinking into the deep future. But I admire him and his team here for simply putting out something that's so blatantly outrageous and unacceptable and even repugnant that what they're actually trying to do is cause people to think about, again, like what he described as the downstream and upstream implications in that, okay, this is so ridiculous, but that, look, if we don't fix what we're doing, if we don't address environmental problems and what is global warming, we're going to have to adopt these ridiculous uh, types of uh, uh, modifications uh, to the human body and to the human mind such that we can deal with climate change, either in terms of preventing it or even dealing with uh, the onset of global warming. So really, really interesting stuff. T tip of the hat to Anders, whether or not you uh, like this article or despise this article, one must uh, at, this, at the same time have deep respect for these writers and what they put together here. And now moving on to the next segment, uh, TED have, they've launched a new series here called TED Ed and, uh, oh, sorry, the TED Ed component of, of, of TED. They put out a new series about questions that no one knows the answers to. And it's a new series. And, uh, it, it's, I think it was driven by the TED curator, Chris Anderson, who uh, apparently has a fascination with these kinds of things, like unknown questions to answers. And they launched the first episode, and it was very enjoyable, actually. And I'm going to play you the entire clip. And uh, the, qu the questions that they asked on this first episode are, how many universes are there? So issues about the universe and metaphysics and cosmology and multiverse theory and even M-theory. And in the second half, 
why can't we see evidence of alien life? So right in the first episode, they go right for the jugular and ask the question about the Fermi paradox. Gotta love it. And on the latter question, his answers are, I would say, a little pedestrian and even a bit outlandish. But he does take a good uh, attempt and it takes a wide swath at the possibilities. And uh, even mentions some uh, some genuine solutions, including uh, the possibilities of the great filter, such as mass extinction, and the uh, possibility of post-biological existence. So here, enjoy this. This is uh, it's about 12 minutes long. And uh, yeah, uh, those are the big questions. Uh, how many universes are there? And why can't we see evidence of alien life? And immediately after this, this, uh, uh, this uh, um, clip, we'll go to music break. And when we get back, discussing future risks and the challenge to democracy. Somewhere out there in that vast universe, there must surely be countless other planets teeming with life. But why don't we see any evidence of it? Well, this is the famous question asked by Enrico Fermi in 1950. Where is everybody? Conspiracy theorists claim that UFOs are visiting all the time and the reports are just being covered up. But honestly, they aren't very convincing. But that leaves a real riddle. In the past year, the Kepler Space Observatory has found hundreds of planets just around nearby stars. And if you extrapolate that data, it looks like there could be half a trillion planets just in our own galaxy. If only one in 10,000 has conditions that might support a form of life, that's still 50 million possible life-harboring planets right here in the Milky Way. So here's the riddle. Our Earth didn't form until about 9 billion years after the Big Bang. Countless other planets in our galaxy should have formed earlier and given life a chance to get underway billions, or certainly many millions of years earlier than happened on Earth. If just a few of them had spawned intelligent life and started creating technologies, those technologies would have had millions of years to grow in complexity and power. On Earth, we've seen how dramatically technology can accelerate in just 100 years. In millions of years, an intelligent alien civilization could easily have spread out across the galaxy, perhaps creating giant energy-harvesting artifacts, or fleets of colonizing spaceships, or glorious works of art that fill the night sky. At the very least, you'd think they'd be revealing their presence, deliberately or otherwise, through electromagnetic signals of one kind or another. And yet we see no convincing evidence of any of it. Why? Well, there are numerous possible answers, some of them quite dark. Maybe a single superintelligent civilization has indeed taken over the galaxy and has imposed strict radio silence because it's paranoid of any potential competitors. It's just sitting there ready to obliterate anything that becomes a threat. Or maybe they're not that intelligent. Or perhaps the evolution of an intelligence capable of creating sophisticated technology is far rarer than we've assumed. After all, it's only happened once on Earth in four billion years. Maybe even that was incredibly lucky. Maybe we are the first such civilization in our galaxy. Or perhaps... Civilization carries with it the seeds of its own destruction through the inability to control the technologies it creates. But there are numerous more hopeful answers. I mean, for a start, we're not looking that hard, and we're spending a pitiful amount of money on it. 
Only a tiny fraction of the stars in our galaxy have really been looked at closely for signs of interesting signals. And perhaps we're not looking the right way. Maybe as civilizations develop, they quickly discover communication technologies far more sophisticated and useful than electromagnetic waves. Maybe all the action takes place inside the mysterious, recently discovered dark matter or dark energy that appear to account for most of the universe's mass. Or maybe we're looking at the wrong scale. Perhaps intelligent civilizations come to realize that life is ultimately just complex patterns of information interacting with each other in a beautiful way, and that that can happen more efficiently at a small scale. So just as on Earth, clunky stereo systems have shrunk to beautiful tiny iPods, maybe intelligent life itself, in order to reduce its footprint on the environment, has turned itself microscopic, so that the solar system might be teeming with aliens and we're just not noticing them. Maybe the very ideas in our heads are a form of alien life. Well, okay, that's a crazy thought. The aliens made me say it. But it is cool that ideas do seem to have a life all of their own and that they outlive their creators. Maybe biological life is just a passing phase. Well, within the next 15 years, we could start seeing real spectroscopic information from promising nearby planets that will reveal just how life-friendly they might be. And meanwhile, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, is now releasing its data to the public so that millions of citizen scientists, maybe including you, can bring the power of the crowd to join the search. And here on Earth, amazing experiments are being done to try to create life from scratch, life that might be very different from the DNA forms we know. All of this will help us understand whether the universe is teeming with life or whether indeed it's just us. Either answer, in its own way, is awe-inspiring. Because even if we are alone, the fact that we think and dream and ask these questions might yet turn out to be one of the most important facts about the universe. And I have one more piece of good news for you. The quest for knowledge and understanding never gets dull. It doesn't. It's actually the opposite. The more you know, the more amazing the world seems. And it's the crazy possibilities, the unanswered questions that pull us forward. So stay curious. for the emergence of the next generation of apocalyptic weapons, it needs to be acknowledged that the world's democracies are set to face their gravest challenge yet. 
as viable and ongoing political options. The continuing presence of increased accessibility of weapons of mass destruction, or WMDs, are poised to put an abrupt end to politics as usual. Technologies that threaten our very existence will greatly upset current sensibilities about social control and civil liberties, and as a consequence, those institutions that have worked for centuries to protect democratic and humanistic values will be put to the test, a test that may ultimately result in a significant weakening of democracy, if not its outright collapse. The pending political situation is categorically different than which followed the Manhattan Project and the advent of nuclear weapons. While proliferation was a problem in the decades preceding the bomb's development, the chances of those weapons getting into the hands of so-called rogue state or a non-state actor was slim to none unless you consider the former Soviet Union, Cuba, China, and Pakistan as being rogue states. Moreover, as we move forward, we will have more than just nuclear weapons to worry about. Future WMDs include bioweapons, such as deliberately engineered pathogens, dirty bombs, weaponized nanotechnology, robotics, misused artificial intelligence, and so on. What makes these WMDs different is the growing ease of acquisition and implementation by those who might actually use them. We live in an increasingly wired and globalized world where access to resources and information has never been easier. Compounding these problems is the rise and empowerment of non-traditional political forces, namely weak states, non-state actors, and disgruntled individuals. In the past, entire armadas were required to inflict catastrophic damage. Today, all that's required are small groups of motivated individuals. And the motivations for using such weapons are set to escalate. Political extremism begets political extremism. Government clampdowns, both internally and externally, will likely elicit radical counter-reactions, there's also the potential for global-scale arms races as new technologies appear on the horizon, such as molecular assembling nanotechnology being a likely candidate. Such arms races could increase not just international tensions, but also instigate espionage and preemptive strikes. Given these high-stakes situations, democratic institutions may not be given the chance to prevent catastrophes or deal with actual crises. Politics and conflict in the 20th century was largely centered around differing opinions about the redistribution of wealth. It was a time of adjusting to the demands of the modern nation-state, large populations, and mature industrial economies. Responses to these challenges included the totalitarian experiments, World War II, and for those nations who resisted the radical urge, the instantiation of Keynesian economics and the welfare state. The coming decades will bear witness to similar sorts of political experimentation and restructuring, including a renewed devotion to extreme measures and radicalism. It is becoming increasingly clear that the 21st century politics will be focused around managing the impacts of disruptive technologies, addressing the threats posed by apocalyptic weapons and environmental degradation, and attending to global-scale catastrophes and crises as they occur. This restructuring is already underway. We live in the post-9-11 world, a world in which we have legitimate cause to be fear fearful of super-terrorism and hyper-terrorism. We will also have to reap what we sowed in regards to environmental neglect. Consequently, our political leaders and institutions will be increasingly called upon to address the compounding problems of unchecked WMD proliferation, terrorism, civil unrest, pandemics, the environmental impacts of climate change like superstorms, flooding, etc., fleets of refugees, devastating food shortages, and so on. It will become very necessary for the world's militaries to anticipate these crises and adapt so that they can meet these demands. More challenging, however, will be in avoiding outright human extinction. Indeed, the term existential risks is becoming is beginning to take root in the vernacular. 
during the uh, the last presidential debates when um, John McCain was up against Barack Obama, John McCain used the expression to illustrate the severity of the Iranian nuclear threat against Israel. While McCain was referring to the threat on Israel's existence, the idea that humanity faces a genuine extinction risk has returned to the popular consciousness. Eventually, these perceived risks will start to play a more prominent role in the political arena, both in terms of politicking and in the forging of policy itself. When the Cold War ended, it was generally thought that the major wars had become obsolete and that a more peaceful, process, prosperous era had emerged. Some commentators, like the political scientist Francis Fukuyama, declared that Western liberal democracy and free market capital systems had triumphed and that it would only be a matter of time before it spread to all regions of the planet. For Fukuyama, this equated to the end of history. It was also around this time that George H. W. Bush proclaimed the advent of a new world order. With the collapse of European communism and the end of bipolar geopolitics, it was hoped that nuclear disarmament would soon follow and with it a global community largely free of conflict. Today, however, we see that these hopes were idealistic and naive. There is still plenty of strife and violence in the international system. In fact, the current multipolar geopolitical arrangement has proven to be far more unstable than the previous orientation particularly because it has allowed economic, political, and cultural globalization to flourish, and along with it, the rise of asymmetrical warfare and escalating motivations for rogue nations and non-state actors to exert terrible damage. Despite the claims of Fukuyama and Bush, and despite our own collective sensibilities, we cannot take our democracies and civil liberties for granted. When appraising the condition of democracies, we must realize that past successes and apparent trajectories are no guarantee of future gain. Indeed, democracy is still the exception around the world and not the rule. Historically speaking, democracies are an abnormality. As early as 1972, only 30, 38% of the world's population lived in countries that could be classified as free. Today, despite the end of the Cold War, this figure has only crept up to 46%. We may be the victims of an ideological bias in which we've assumed far too much about democracy's potential, including its correlation with progress and its ability to thrive in drastically different social environments. Catastrophic and existential risks will put democratic institutions in danger, given an unprecedented need for social control, surveillance, and compliance. Liberal democracies will likely regress to de facto authoritarianism under the intense strain. Tools that will allow democratic governments to do so include invoking emergency measures, eliminating dissent and protest, censorship, suspending elections and constitutions, and trampling on civil, civil liberties like illegal arrests, surveillance, limiting mobility, etc., Looking further ahead, extreme threats may even rekindle the totalitarian urge. This option will appeal to those leaders looking to exert absolute control over their citizens. What's particularly frightening is that a future technologies will allow for a more intensive and invasive totalitarianism than was ever thought possible in the 20th century, including ubiquitous surveillance and the monitoring of so-called thought crimes, absolute control over information, and the redesign of humanity itself, namely using genetics and cybernetics to create a more traceable and controllable citizenry. Consequently, as a political mode that utterly undermines humanistic values and the preservation of the autonomous individual, totalitarianism represents an ex existential risk unto itself. It is possible, of course, that democracies will rise to the challenge and work to create a more resilient civilization while keeping it free. Potential solutions have already been proposed, such as strengthening transnational governance, invoking an accountable participatory panopticon, and the relinquishment of nuclear weapons. It is through this type of foresight that we can begin to plan and restructure our systems in such a way that our civil liberties and freedoms will remain intact. Democracies and human civilization have, after all, survived the first test of our apocalyptic potential. That said, existential and catastrophic risks may reveal a dark path that will be all too easy for reactionary and fearful leaders to venture upon. 
politicians may distrust seemingly radical and risky solutions to such serious risks. Instead, tried and true measures, where the state exerts an iron fist and wages war against its own citizens, may appear more reasonable to panicked politicians. We may be entering into a period of socio-political disequilibrium that will instigate the diminishment of democratic institutions and values. Sadly, we may look back someday and reflect on how democracy was an historical convenience. And on that note, I will conclude this week's edition of the Sentient Developments podcast. I hope you found it interesting, and thank you once again for joining me. I will uh, reprise this. uh, We'll do it again in about a week's time. And until then, if you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at george at sentientdevelopments.com. Sorry, george at sentientdevelopments.com. Until then, have yourselves a wonderful and productive week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.